Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Sean Donnan, the FT's World News Editor. On the show this week, fury in the European Union as Britain wields the veto and efforts to bring the Eurozone crisis to an end continue. We've got a global accord on climate change in Durban and many more years of negotiations to come. But first, to the repercussions for the European Union after Britain's refusal to back steps towards closer fiscal integration. Is this really the beginning of a two-speed Europe? Joining me on the line from Brussels is FT Bureau Chief Peter Spiegel, and with me in the studio here in London is Ben Hall, our Europe news editor and deputy world news editor. Uh, ben, why don't we start with you? Uh, this veto of a new treaty for Europe uh, really is effectively the UK exercising the nuclear option, something that's normally kept as a deterrent rather than something that's rolled out. What is this going to mean for the UK and Europe going forward? I think all of that depends on how things pan out over the next uh, few weeks and months in terms of this new treaty, ostensibly at, uh, a treaty amongst the 26 other members of the EU. If it's um, wide ranging uh, and if it allows for certain things like much closer integration on tax, labour market policy, other areas that might be part of considered part of the single market, um, as well as all of the other stuff on fiscal rules and automatic sanctions, et cetera, et cetera, for fiscal sinners, then I think it's very bad news uh, um, for the UK. But if it's uh, a much more minimalist treaty, then I think possibly um, the UK might be able to get away without fundamental damage to its um, uh, vital national interests. I think what is clear, though, is that this was a watershed moment because whether by accident or design, uh, the UK has absented itself from those discussions about how important the scope of this treaty is. They have no voice. And I think that is the first time in a generation, if not even longer, that the UK has wanted to do that. And I think it's a very worrying shift. So how is this fiscal compact, as it's been called, developing, Peter? The interesting thing, which makes this whole split even more peculiar. I mean, much of what's in this fiscal compact has already been agreed by most of the participants. It is things like preventing your debt-to-GDP ratio to going above 60% and preventing your annual budget deficit from going above 3% of GDP. I mean, these are all things that have already been in the pipeline and in many cases already passed through normal EU legislative procedures. What the, the reason there was an insistence on doing this treaty change uh, measure was that Germany in particular wanted this to be unchangeable. They wanted it to be in the, the, what they call the primary law of the EU, the founding trees. We have to put that in there to make sure this never happens again. So to be honest with you, on the substance, there's largely agreement already. There's largely, including among the UK, uh, that, that they're going to go down this path. And this is only going to govern the Eurozone for the time being. And there are already penalties in place that if, if you disagree or you, you, you violate these rules and you violate the recommendations from the bureaucrats here in Brussels, you'll get fined and, and whatnot. So much of what is being touted as a new fiscal compact has already been agreed. And, and that's what makes this whole debate uh, somewhat, somewhat irrelevant, to be honest with you, to the, the current crisis. 
But the big question, of course, is does this fiscal compact, does the fact that they've agreed on closer fiscal integration as part of a sort of choreographed response, we are expecting uh, the French, we're talking about a Christmas present from the European Central Bank uh, to follow this, uh, some kind of broad, bigger intervention from the ECB. I mean, are we seeing the signs that Europe is finally moving to resolve this crisis? Well, that's the problem. And I know there are senior officials here in Brussels and elsewhere who are very concerned that all this talk of treaty change and all this talk of a crystal compact will, in the words of one person I talked to, you know, it's all well and good for the next crisis, to prevent the next crisis, but does very little to deal with the current crisis. On that, on that regard, what people with the markets are looking for is some sign that the, that the Europeans are coming up with what's being universally called the big bazooka. And whether that bazooka is through national governments putting up new money for a firewall or for bailouts or for rescues, or the ECB intervening on a much greater scale and a much more aggressive scale, um, we haven't seen that yet. And that's why I think the markets have responded very badly. I mean, even, even the last two summits, <laughs> that to, the last two summits to end all summits to save the euro, at least we had a few days of positive response from the markets. We almost had no positive response from the markets in this one, because I think people see some of this treaty change debate as a sideshow. They don't see the ECB intervening. The, the, the messages coming out of the ECB and Mario Draghi, the new president of the ECB, were quite mixed. Uh, we don't see new resources being devoted to the bailout mechanisms. We saw no commitment to, to commonly issued bonds, which is not also seen as a way of, of guaranteeing the debts of the, 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 the Southerners who are in trouble. Uh, we didn't see any movement on any of those things. So I think that's the concern, that we might have a yet another summit to save the euro uh, in, in a couple of months. So, Ben, is there really another summit to save the euro left, in, I mean, really in terms of the markets, in terms of their patience for a European response? I'm, I'm not sure uh, whether the markets are prepared to wait another three months, but I think European leaders certainly think to, seem to think that they can come back in March and have another go at boosting the size of the um, the, the Eurozone's rescue funds and maybe nailing down the final bits of uh, bigger resources for the IMF. And then the, possibly the question of the big ECB role in backstopping uh, the bond markets. But whether the bond markets are prepared to wait for that, I, I think, is, an, is a big question. And whether or not actually the financial system is robust enough across the eurozone to cope uh, with essentially not much action from eurozone leaders remains to be seen frankly and, and we shouldn't forget of course this is all taking a massive toll on the real economy you know um, pushing the eurozone deeper into recession um, it's going to be pretty grim for the first bit of, the, of of next year that's for sure so let's talk about next year a little bit more uh, peter walk me through how you think this is going to unfold over the next year well, I mean, to, the, to date, and then this, this crisis has gone on, gosh, almost over 18 months already. And, and the, the dynamic has always been uh, people with, here in Brussels and, frankly, now internationally, pushing the Germans to basically at some point acknowledge that they are going to have to use their balance sheet as the largest and healthiest economy in Europe to shore up the rest of the Eurozone. And, and gradually, over the course of the last year and a half, they have allowed that to some extent. They have allowed some growth in, in, in the use of, of the bailout fund, which, let's be honest, is primarily backed by the Germans. They have allowed some use of the ECB to buy Italian and Spanish bonds. Again, that is basically German largely money going to buy those bonds. And we've started to see a, a change in rhetoric in, in Germany uh, on the issue of euro bonds, which is these common, uh, commonly issued bonds. They've gone from absolutely to no to no, but maybe in the future. And so I think at the course of the next year, as this crisis becomes even more acute, all the focus is going to be on Berlin. 
and to the extent to which Angela Merkel feels comfortable enough with her own domestic political situation that she's able to give ground on those things. I mean, this is the quid pro quo that everyone has been anticipating. If Merkel gets her fiscal compact, if she gets these rules embedded in the treaties, she can then go to her domestic audience and say, okay, right, we've gotten our quid, now we need our quo, which is, you know, we must show what is called here in Europe solidarity. We must show that we're willing to help out our southern brethren and allow more, frankly, German money to be lent and used in, in, in rescuing the rest of the Eurozone. And so I think that's the dynamic we're going to see over the course of the next year. Now, what Ben pointed out is whether the bond markets are willing to wait that long. Let's remember, early next year we have a huge amount tens of billions of euros of Italian and Spanish debt that needs to be issued. And right now, both Italian and Spanish debt is trading at anywhere between 6 and 7%, which most people in the markets believe is unsustainable. It does add a huge amount of money to the debt levels of both countries. So can we go forward and wait for Germany to come forward finally with its solidarity plan? Uh, can we wait months for that? And can the bond market wait months for that? And if not, then what? Does it mean some sort of rescue plan from the IMF, it can't be a full-fledged bailout because, as everyone points out, you know Italy is too big to bail. It's just, it's just that with 1.9 trillion in euros in debt, there is no program big enough to save Italy. But do we do a line of credit? Do we do some sort of bridging loan that allows Italian Italy to borrow at a much lower rate over the course of the next year, and then quickly move back into the markets when things settle down? And that's what we need to watch over the next three months. How does that dynamic play out? And also, uh, what does Mario Draghi do, president of the European Central Bank? I mean, how he reacts to the, the next over the next few months, I think, is absolutely crucial, as as important as Merkel's role, frankly. Um, and he's in a rather tricky position because he argues that it's um, national government's responsibility to sort out this problem. One would conclude from the summit on Thursday and Friday that they haven't sorted it out. And yet he is potentially the, the saviour of the euro. Will he intervene heavily enough to prop up the bond markets and prevent the European eurozone economy from crashing? That's the real question, I think, for the next few, uh, for the early part of next year. And it's not a trick, not not an easy one for Draghi to deal with. I mean, we've already talked about uh, the impact on the real economy in the Eurozone, but what we haven't talked about so much is the impact on the global economy, really. I mean, there are people talking about 2012 as a much grimmer year than 2011. Uh, the real possibility that we could get a double-dip recession globally. Uh, at some point, uh, people have been talking about the IMF, uh, BRIC countries, uh, other parts of the world getting involved and helping out the, uh, the Eurozone. What's the, when are we going to see the IMF get involved? How are they going to get involved? And when are we going to see that Chinese money descend on Europe? I think there's still a strong feeling um, in the BRIC countries and elsewhere, um, voiced by uh, Japan, uh, for example, that the Europeans still haven't sorted out their, haven't put their own house in order. Um, and I think that's quite worrying too, because it means we won't get that uh, big boost to IMF resources with all sorts of other countries coming in. Uh, so I, th I, th I fear we've got a quite a long way to go before we get the uh, you know, bigger IMF uh, package on board. Prediction time. Uh, this is a sovereign debt crisis. It's also an existential crisis for the euro. Uh, at the end of 2012, will we still have the euro, Ben? Yes. Peter? Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I think, I think all this, this sort of rhetoric about the end of the euro fails to take into account how costly it would be, not only for the European economy, but for the global economy to break up the euro. And I think all you have to do is look at the discussion over whether Greece should be kicked out of the euro, uh, which really sort of gained uh, you know, a lot of rhetorical credence when George Papandreou, uh, the, the prime minister, uh, discussed 
you know, a referendum on, on the bailout program. When people sat down in the, in the cold light of day and said, what really is involved with kicking Greece out of the euro, the costs were enormous. It's not only shutting down the entire Greek banking system and probably closing the borders of Greece so that people who didn't run out with suitcases full of euros. It meant the entire meltdown of the Greek banking system, which would have huge knock-on effects on ever, every other European bank. If I have a, a euro, let's, be, let's pick a country because I'm here in Belgium, and say it's a Belgian euro, and I have it sitting in a Belgian bank account, and I say, well, hey, look what they just did to my euros in, in Greece. They turned them into drachmas. What are they going to do to my Belgian euro? All of a sudden, every single bank in every single non-German European country sees a run on their banks. It's, people move, move their euros out of those banks and into Germany. And the, 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 the complete collapse of the European financial system is what follows. So I think when people start really looking at what the consequences are for kicking someone out or breaking up the euro, I think the costs are just too high. And the other thing is we have to remember the political cost of this. Does Angela Merkel and Nicolas Sarkozy want to go down as the two leaders who destroyed the euro? And I think that is really how they would go down in history if it broke up. And there's just too much political consequence for that to happen. So I think for political reasons, financial reasons, and economic reasons, I don't think that's really in the cards, despite the rhetoric you hear out of some corners. I think they will finally find a way to either get the ECB or the German sovereign to back up the rest of the Eurozone and ride this storm out to, so that the economy, real economy starts picking up again and they can deal with this in a much less crisis-oriented atmosphere. I think one of the key questions, though, will be the extent to which this new treaty, these new treaty obligations <clears throat> actually push any of the Eurozone, current Eurozone members out of the euro. I mean, Ireland is the obvious one. If they have to have a referendum on new fiscal rules uh, and if they, in the current circumstances, I think many people in Ireland would say it would be very difficult to get a yes vote. What happens to Ireland and what happens to that treaty? That's a really tricky question. And it's one of the many questions we're going to be coming back to in the months to come as we keep tracking this crisis. Peter Spiegel in Brussels, thank you very much. Ben Hall here in the studio, thank you. Let's move from the crisis in the Eurozone to climate change. Uh, we had two weeks of almost equally torturous negotiations in Durban. Delegates from almost 200 nations brought the talks back from the brink of collapse, thrashing out a compromise. Clive Cookson, the FT's science editor, has spoken to our environment correspondent, Polita Clark, who was at the Durban talks. Clive began by asking Polita how much more, if anything, had been achieved at the Durban meeting. When one asks how much the world has got out of it, I'm afraid that they have basically agreed to agree to talk. That's what's happened here. They have agreed that by 2015 they will not only uh, have managed to agree on the um, second phase of Kyoto, but they will have done this rather um, historic, really, um, treaty which, which is going to bring in all countries, not just the relatively small number that have always been in Kyoto. Um, and they're going to bring them all in, and they will, uh, by 2015, negotiate uh, a global agreement with legal force, whatever that may or may not mean, that will see all countries curbing their emissions. And is there any legal obligation to keep talking? I mean, this, I, as you say, there are lots of semantics all around the world, the word legal, but does this guarantee that something will be agreed by 2015 and come into force in 2020? Well, um, unfortunately, I'm not an international lawyer, but um, my my feeling is that the, there is now um, 
and a strong impetus for that to be done. But as we've seen just last night, um, when it comes to legally binding, uh, even something like the Kyoto Protocol, which is the world's only legally binding global treaty, is by no means fail-safe because we saw Canada just announcing that it was going to pull out of it. Yes, Kyoto had a get-out clause. Yeah, well, I mean, the the penalties under Kyoto uh, basically say that uh, if you fail to meet your commitments in the first phase, then you have to make up for it in the second phase. Now, we've only just this weekend agreed that there will, in fact, be a second phase. So you can see that, you know, that, that Kyoto agreement was actually ado- agreed in 1997. It took until 2005, really, for it to come into force. And now, here we are in 2011, they finally agree a second commitment period, just a year before the first was due to run out. And and we're already seeing one of the large countries that had signed up to it saying, well, sorry, um, not only are we not going in for a second commitment period, which they'd already announced, sorry, this is terribly complicated, but, but we're, we're also pulling out of the treaty altogether, so we don't want to be punished. So... There we go. It's it's this is this is what we're the world uh, of climate negotiations must deal with. How damaging is Canada's withdrawal? Well, uh, I mean, I think what it shows is that despite the euphoria, which there really was in the early hours of Sunday morning, not least since the <laughs> finally finished, but, it, but it, there was enormous relief that uh, this global treaty, this second pact, had been agreed upon. But I think what Canada has done is really puncture that rather uh, sharply, and it has shown the difficulties with actually getting countries to uh, abide by these sorts of agreements. Not, and we, before we even start talking, uh, before anyone starts talking about this second pact, we've seen how easy it is to with, withdraw from them. Well, presumably that's a lesson that can be learnt for whatever it follows Kyoto. It'll have to be impossible to wriggle out like that. Well, that's right. I mean, there was this extraordinary um, argy-bargy right on the conference floor at around 2.30 a.m. in the morning where literally the negotiators and their lawyers were arguing about the the difference between the terms protocol, legal instrument, agreed outcome with legal force, which is what we've got in the end. But it's it's a choice between all of them. And now I'm afraid what we're going to see is several years leading up to 2015 where there is a huge amount of debate and discussion about what this actually constitutes on the ground. Let's talk about one of the positives. You wrote a story in the immediate aftermath for Monday's paper where you quoted a banker saying this was like Viagra for the carbon trading markets that were flagging, shall we say. Well, I think um, if you were involved in the global carbon markets as... um, uh, Mr. Kamali, the uh, um, Bank of America banker was, that I quoted, is, then you're incredibly relieved uh, that there was not a train wreck in Durban because had there been, um, it would have uh, taken even more air out of the markets than we've already seen. We've seen prices, as, largely as a result of the Eurozone crisis because the world's largest carbon market is, in fact, the European Emissions Trading Scheme. Uh, largely as a result of that, we've seen carbon prices go down to record lows. But there's also... Um, an oversupply problem in the market. Um, had there been, on top of that, a failure in Durban, where we couldn't, where the world was looking as if it was not at all interested in increasing any sort of environmental ambition, 
then that would have been uh, another nail in uh, what's looking like a, a not quite sealed coffin, but one that's uh, heading towards the graveyard. So, yes, they're very relieved more than anything else. As for whether it's actually going to put up carbon prices dramatically in the next sort of weeks and months, then that's, that's another uh, issue, I fear. And lastly, could you run through how the negotiating process to 2015 and 2020 might go? I don't mean all the steps, but... Just well, what might th- happen? Uh, very, very broadly, um, what will be done first is that uh, the countries will tackle the second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol. As you know, the first runs out by the end of uh, 2012. So what they will do in the coming months is they will figure out how to, uh, w- precisely which countries are going to be in it and what sort of targets and what sort of length. We don't even know how long this one's going to be. The first was five years, the second maybe eight. Uh They will then start looking at this much more difficult process of the global treaty involving all parties. And we will start seeing a discussion of this in these what they call intercessionals, another lovely UN word, uh, these meetings leading up to the next COP, the next conference of the parties, the next annual um, meeting, which is going to be in Qatar at the end of next year. That was Clive Cookson and Polita Clark. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Peter Spiegel in Brussels and Ben Hall, Clive Cookson, and Polita Clark in the studio. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.